All set? We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, we are getting into chapter 4, which, as I've mentioned, is a major transition in the book. You'll see that right off the bat. And we've done our homework. We've gotten our context, thanks to an entire class last week devoted to that. We saw Ezekiel, we saw Daniel, we saw Isaiah. Three of the four biblical glimpses into heaven and specifically the throne room of God, maybe even more narrowly, the throne of God itself, the throne or chariot as it is when it's mobile. So now we get into the fourth. Uh, without further ado, let's simply jump right into the text. Chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. Whose voice is this? This is Christ's voice, and it's the one who looks very much like a blurring or blending together of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7. If you took those two images and blurred them together, uh, that's precisely what went on back in Revelation chapter 1. Oh, starting around, I mean, the section starts around verse 9 and goes then, flows into the letters themselves. So this one like the Son of Man, one like Jesus transfigured on the mount, uh, but now colored with these characteristics of the ancient of days, like the white hair. The, the point theologically being the point of the revelation, the point that John's communicating is to see Jesus is to see the Father. Exactly. This is, this is so foundational, not just to Lutheran theology, to Christian theology, period. To see Jesus is to see the Father. As soon as you say, okay, Jesus, get out of the way. I just want to see the Father right now. You've just lost the Father. Whatever it is you're looking at or thinking on or meditating upon is no longer the Father. The way to see the Father is only through the Son. He is the express image of the invisible God. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, Jesus says. Okay, so then we, uh, we see this figure and his, his speech. That's the first thing. It's the first thing that John notices before he even turns around is that his voice sounds like a trumpet, like a horn, okay? like this this otherworldly blast. And now he's identifying for us that, that that voice that's dictated these seven epistles or the sevenfold epistle to the church of God is now speaking to him once more. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. I was once in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Now, before we get too far along, in the Spirit, we've heard that language before, all the way back in chapter 1, where he said he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, which 
puts us in a liturgical context right off the bat. And here's a reminder of that liturgical context, although something now has changed. The preceding revelation has taken place on earth, and this latter portion of the revelation, really till the end of, of the book of Revelation, is going to take place in heaven, you see? But we're being reminded of those connections. We're being reminded that in the Spirit, on the earth, in the Spirit, up in heaven, we're to connect this liturgically. I've often thought that probably the best way possible to read the book of Revelation would be to, to come in some Wednesday morning, let me know that you're coming in so you know I don't spray you with uh, pepper spray or something. Let me know you're, you're coming in and sit in the sanctuary and read Revelation. That's probably about the best way to do it, other than doing it during the divine service itself, which I would just think you weren't paying attention, you know, not standing up or sitting down when you're supposed to, not making eye contact when I'm trying to preach. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe better. But, but here's the point. The point is that the book is meant to be read liturgically. And here's one more, one more verbal cue of that. Obviously, what is also being indicated is that this is supernatural. John can't just simply elevate up into heaven anytime he wants. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit given. So come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, again, this is revelatory, so we want to be trying to picture this in our, in our mind. We want to be trying to visualize this. We also, in the background, want to keep in mind all of the other data that we've been given, especially in recent times, about what heaven is like. All the quote-unquote near-death experiences and people run, you know, writing books that tell us what heaven is supposedly like. See if they're at all like what... John says they're like, what John says heaven is like, okay? So have that in the back of your mind, too. Now, the first thing he sees is a giant throne. Already we're different than most near-death, out-of-body experiences, which have nothing to do with this. Okay? So he is, uh, Yeah, yeah. Behold, a throne stood in heaven and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, we've seen these themes before particularly in Ezekiel, when we looked at those accounts, the one seated upon the throne is described in terms of stones, these magnificent flashing stones, and then around him also the iris, the, the rainbow sphere that's around him. So we've seen this before. Now, one of the problems we have here is we don't know if these specific stones equate to the modern equivalents, the, the stones that now go by those names. Okay. If they, if they do, uh, jasper is blood red or green. Okay? A <laughs> little bit of difference there. Uh, let's see what else do I have in my notes. Emerald, obviously, is green. Carnelian, blood red. So blood red slash green 
if these are equal to the modern equivalents. It's, and Brighton makes this point, it's probably not so much the color that's in view as is the, the nature of what he's seeing. You know, how, you know how fine stones can be almost translucent, three-dimensional, and yet they shine so brightly and wonderfully and flash different colors? That's probably more the effect of the language here. So the one seated on the throne is indescribable other than these most abstract terms, jasper, carnelian, emerald, um, and, and again, maybe the color has something to do with it, but we don't know. If it is, if it is blood red and, and green, how interesting, how otherworldly. that. <laughs> I, mean, I don't want to get carried away with symbolism there. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of emerald. See, and the, so the rainbow having the appearance of emerald, was, well, emerald would be green. So in what sense is it a green rainbow and still a rainbow? So you see, that's kind of part of the problem with trying to put too much weight on the color here. With the rainbow surrounding the throne, first of all, I mean, we're struck by the image that this is awe and majesty, indescribable. Even the words and images that John is using to describe it don't adequately, you know, it's, it's like these things. It's not these things. And then this rainbow around the throne reminds us, of course, of God's grace and mercy. It connects us with the one who brought the flood upon the world all the way at the beginning. Okay? And so we see that he is just, justly angered over mankind's sins, but we also see that he is merciful, hanging the rainbow in the sky uh, as a promise that he would never destroy the earth in that way again. And so to even approach the throne of God is to immediately see the rainbow, which... Boy, in our context, that takes on a different meaning, doesn't it? Some people are going to be really disappointed. They're going to see the rainbow and think, ha-ha, I was right. And then they're going to get a little closer. <laughs> Bad news. Bad news. Yeah. And then, and then with that, with that, oh my goodness, now you can see how satanic the rainbow is in our, and why Satan has chosen that very thing to overturn the very image of God on earth. The image of God is man, and specifically the two made one flesh the family. That's the image of God on earth. And now that is being destroyed under what banner? Yeah, the rainbow flag. You see, you, do you see the devil's taunt in that? You don't really have to have high levels of spiritual discernment to detect the devil's taunt in waving the, uh, waving the, uh, the rainbow flag like, oh God, you promised to be merciful while we do all these things that are abominations to you and utterly destroy your image and creation. Don't worry, God will get even. He always does. And he does so perfectly and definitively. I've cataloged this for you only in part, but God is so just and so perfect in his justice. In one way, shape, or form, it will be one for one. No doubt about it. You led us into, you led our race to be, to, uh, into fall by Adam, by a man, so by Christ, by Jesus, I'll restore everyone. You led them into a fall by a tree, thus by the tree of the cross, I'll bring them back. You gave them death by eating what, what hung from the tree, so by eating what hangs from the tree, the body and blood of Christ, I'll give them life. You see how God just one-to-one, -one, just tit for tat, just all the way through, answers the devil. So no doubt about it, he'll have an answer for the devil on this one as well. 
All right, but the, but the rainbow for us as Christians, when we approach the throne of God in, in that terrible and, and awesome day, we will remember the words and deeds of our God and we will be filled with peace. This is the God of mercy, the God of Israel, the God of such mercy that instead of sending the floodwaters to destroy us, he has now transformed the floodwaters of holy baptism into that which saves us. That's precisely Peter's point in 1 Peter 3. All right. Verse uh, 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Let's pause there because we're introduced to a new group of folks and a new data point. What we, what we have, and it's really important to kind of keep the cumulative vision in mind so that you really get the visual impact of what happens. Okay. We right now have 25 thrones. The one throne in the middle, which is utterly mysterious, and then 24 thrones around the outside. Now, are these elders angels or human beings? It's a big point of contention, and no one knows for sure. Brighton gives a lot of evidence that we ought to view them as human beings, uh, representative of the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles, or the 12 tribes of the new Israel. Makes a lot of sense that then you would have 24. <clears throat> Who specifically are their identities? I mean, is it, the, is it the 12 sons of Jacob, you know, specifically, and the 12 disciples uh, specifically? I mean, minus uh, Judas, of course, and replaced by Matthias, or maybe St. Paul. But who knows? It's a little bit beyond the point, because this, those specifics aren't given to us. But one of the things that really pushes us in the direction of seeing these as, is, as human beings is the way they're described. The way they're described wearing these white garments, and we're going, to, we're going to be reminded of this later, in just a few chapters later in Revelation 7, where the people are gathered around the throne are all in white garments. We're going to see increasingly this language of reign and reigning with Christ, and so we see that these uh, 12 are, or excuse me, these 24 are also crowned with golden crowns, which of course you remember the line from the hymn, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea. Well, that's where this comes from. These are the golden crowns. The glassy sea is a few verses from now. Okay, so again, 25, uh, 25 thrones are what we have right now visually. <clears throat> Verse 5 from the throne, so this is the center throne, the throne of God, came flashes of lightning and rumblings, which is such a fascinating word because it can mean something like um, uh, rumblings or like nondescript, like thunder or something like that, but it can also mean voices. And we've already been told that his, you know, we've read this, that his voice is sometimes like many voices or like a rush of water. And so it's very interesting just to note that in terms of the sound. We have flashes of lightning visually going from out from his throne. Then we have all of this sound going on, uh, these rumblings and peals of thunder. 
So again, what's conjured up here, it, it's a little lost on us probably in our, in our you know, TV robot movie days where you know, thunder and lightning don't really mean anything next to a gazillion robots blowing themselves up on screen uh, with such frequency that you can't even tell what's going on visually. You just kind of sit there stunned. Uh, but I would say you have all likely been to the Midwest or from time to time we get some thunder out here. Uh, and you know when the boom goes off right over your head for the first time and it kind of rattles the dishes and startles you. It can even take your breath away when it's really close just because it's such a percussion. Uh, that's, that's the kind of visceral bodily impact we, we want to have uh, in our minds as we consider the throne of God. That not only do you see his glory, you hear his glory, and in all likelihood you feel his glory. So we have flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now we've seen this imagery before, back in chapter 1. And we know that uh, the, seven, um, the seven lampstands are also the seven churches. And these accord with the sevenfold spirit. So again, layer upon layer upon layer. But we recognize now that these uh, seven torches um, of fire before the throne are the seven spirits of God. And that's precisely what the last part of verse 5 says, which are the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of God. Okay. So now in the center, we're, see, we're building pieces. We're building the imagery. And we're going to notice that something is missing. So right now we have the throne in the center. So obviously the center of everything. Majesty and awe unparalleled. 24 around it. Now in front of the throne are seven, you know, large torches. This set, and they represent the spirit. Who represents the one who sits upon the throne? Do you know yet? We don't really know yet. But if you cheat a little, you know it's the... Father. So you have the Father, you have the Spirit, you have the 24 elders so far. Good? Okay. Verse 6, and before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Now we remember this from Ezekiel's vision. Remember with the chariot? It's like you start down with the four living creatures and you got the wheels and then you sort of build up and, and there's this thing upon which the throne is seated. You know, the throne's sitting up there and then you have the one upon the throne. His upper body looks all like shiny metallic and his lower body's just flames. Remember that vision? And um, that, that thing that he's seated upon, like that his throne sat upon, that's exactly described in this way. Now, there's some really fascinating things you can do with this vision. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, I probably should go a little further. I'll, I hope I remember. All right. Because this is, this is just a really awesome kind of visual image you can have in your head. There's so many that you can have. I mean, this is meant to be meditated upon and thought of in so many different ways. It's really endless. I mean, you can really just spend the rest of your life here in Chapter 4 if you, if you want. Chapter 4 and Chapter 5. All right. So we've got this, we've got this glassy sea. 
We've got the 24 elders with golden crowns, casting down their golden, golden crowns around the glassy sea, as the hymn says. We've got the one seated upon the throne. We've got the seven torches of fire. Then uh, latter half of verse 6, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Now we've seen these before in Ezekiel's vision. These are the four living creatures. They're described in a, a little bit differently here. So we don't know if they're the identical beings that Ezekiel saw, or if they're like the same species of being, the same office of being, different individuals. We don't know, but, but here's the description. The four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, and the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, what's different between this vision of the four living creatures and the one Ezekiel saw? Do you remember? Specific to their faces. Here in Revelation, they each have how many faces? Just one. Yeah, just one. In Ezekiel, they had four. All four of them had four of these faces. You see, so it's not exactly identical. That just deepens the mystery about, about these four living creatures. But here we see those, those four components that were each on the face of the ones in Ezekiel, now they're singularly on the face of each individual living creature. So one like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, one like an eagle. I'll comment here in brief. When we get to chapter 5, and really the height of the drama of these chapters, the drama centers around a scroll that is in God the Father's right hand. When that scroll is opened, the scriptures are opened. God's eternal plan of salvation is opened. So, in other words, the climax of Revelation is literary. Literary. Now, when you start to think and see Revelation, as we mentioned, liturgically and in terms of literature, word, written word, preached word, those two things go together, don't they? And when we start to think of the reality, frankly, well, I'm going to get a little too profound here, at least for my taste. If you look at Psalm 19, let's do it real quick. Just look with me at Psalm 19. This is, this is a really cool thing. Okay, so Psalm 19... The heavens declare the glory of God. What are the heavens doing? Declaring. Okay, what's another word for declaring? Speaking. The heavens are speaking, all right? And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
Now, it's not just the sky. It's not just the heavens. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Whose voice? What voice? All of creation is speaking. All of creation is word. Now that makes perfect sense because we learned in the beginning that when God creates the world, he does so how? Speaking. That which he makes is all word. And when you, get, when you grasp the depth of this, you realize that everything around you is theophany. Creation is theophany. That's the first article of the creed, an understanding of which you can only come to through the third and second articles of the creed. Enlightened by the Holy Spirit, coming to comprehend who the Father is through the redemption we have in the Son, and then seeing the Father as the maker of heavens and earth, and seeing the heavens and the earth then as theophany, as revelation of God, as the mask of God. And thus it is always speaking to us. This is why St. Paul says, they are without excuse. Everyone on earth knows that there is a God. Everyone on earth hears the voice of God, sees the voice of God, to use Psalm 19, and there are only those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We spend so much time on these questions of like, why some and not others? Oh, the, the mystery of election. And I'm not saying we shouldn't spend time on that, but we spend an inordinate amount of time on that and not on this that all of creation has access to God. And the fact that men do not acknowledge or give honor to God, but instead give honor to the creature rather than the creator, they start worshiping the stuff instead of the one who is speaking through the stuff. That, that is without excuse. That's precisely Paul's argument in Romans 2. It's precisely the argument, by the way, if you look at Acts, how on earth does Paul go and preach to all these pagan people who don't care about what the Bible says and don't acknowledge it necessarily as an authority or source? He basically begins like this. You're going to be judged, and you know it. You know it. And God does not judge partially. He judges impartially. Whether Jew or Gentile, he knows all your works, he knows all your ways, he knows what's public, and he knows what only you know. He knows what's secret. And you will be judged on the last day, and all will be revealed. The fact that there is a creator and we are accountable to him is simply undeniable by the creation itself. Okay. The, the creation itself speaks and testifies. Our own consciences bear witness within us excusing and accusing us. See, all of this is the word and handiwork of God. So then, when we are considering, when we are considering um, revelation as a word event, as a literary event, we ought to be considering these things. To open the scroll upon which are written the words of God, the plan of God for salvation, 
is reality. It's opening not just word, like information about something or that represents something. It's opening up the reality itself. Because again, all of creation is word. Now, if that's true and you start to read and understand Revelation as as a textual event, as a linguistic event, as a liturgical event, and this is the way the early church fathers understood it, you start to see these four living creatures differently. You start to see these four living creatures as the four corners of the earth and as um, literary events in and of themselves. This, then, is where the Christian iconography comes in. It goes all the way back to Irenaeus, um, which is like the early 2nd century. You're talking right after the apostolic fathers, I mean, basically overlapping with them. It's as early as you get. And he says these four living creatures represent the four Gospels. And the point of the early church is that there couldn't be more than four Gospels or less than four Gospels because four is the number of the earth, four directions, four winds. And so there are four living creatures. And those living creatures as literary event are the Gospels themselves. It's a fascinating idea. But you can see this in iconography. Um, there, there's an icon, for example, um, of uh, the cherubim in the style of Ezekiel with the four heads, right? Um, so so how, is this, how is this traditionally put? Well, there's, there's differences in how they formulate this, but the sort of majority view is that Matthew, due to the genealogy, is represented by the human face. Luke, due to the priestly aspect of uh, particularly the think of the, well, no, it's all the way through his gospel, but particularly the early parts with Zechariah, Zechariah the priest, um, he's, the, he's the calf or the ox. And then John, because, you know, I, if you have any experience with his gospel, it's exactly like this. It's the eagle in flight. And that's, uh, th- so that's John. And then that leaves the lion for Mark. And so those are the four, those are the four faces, the four representatives. And again, not taking away from the fact that these four living creatures are actually beings that exist, taking nothing away from that, okay? But that these have a literary significance, um, again, on the basis that the word is creation and creation is the word. You can have so much fun with this paradigm and this way of thinking because it's really rather profound. The word of God then becomes flesh so that we who are fallen flesh might once again become word. You see, because God spoke and said, let us create man in his image and we were made in his image. We were his word, you see. And then we fell. No longer his word. Mutterings, stumblings, stutterings, grunts, raspberries. That's what human beings are. But then the word becomes flesh that the flesh might again become word that we each individually and collectively as a, total, as a psalm might be the word of God. So anyway, I simply bring that up because there's this whole other literary dimension and way in which you can read uh, this text and you should read it that way. It lends itself to that. We should also read it just as straightforward revelation. There are these these beings. So once more then, you've got the four living creatures. You've got the throne in the middle. You've got um, the, the sevenfold spirit, the seven torches in front, and you've got the 24 thrones of the elders around. Underneath and around, you've got the glassy sea. Make sense so far? 
Okay? Now, a really cool way, and I think that this is in the pseudepigraphal writings, a really cool way that people have conceptualized this, like going all the way back, is to view the, to view the sky. Okay? Think of the sky in the day, and you know, it's, it's, azure, it's this azure blue, it's this crystalline kind of blue. To look up and, and see that as the, as the bottom of the sea, and the four living creatures bearing up the earth and enveloping the earth with their wings. You remember the Psalms that talk about um, the uh, heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool? So, so there is the glassy sea above us. That's his footstool. The top of the earth is his footstool. The throne is upon that in the heavens upon which he sits. Do you see how everything is gigantic? And the earth as a sphere, which would really be the whole cosmos, not just planet earth, the whole cosmos, the whole visible creation would be there. And the invisible creation would be his, where his throne is. So a really rather cosmic view, but a way that makes sense then suddenly of those, those psalms and that imagery and language of heaven is his throne, earth is his footstool. Now you can visualize it. Now it would make the four living creatures around the earth or around the cosmos, the visible cosmos. All right, we're missing someone. We're missing someone. Who? The sun. He's not there. And we move on. The answer is always Jesus. I see some of my former confirmation students back there. Jesus. All right. So verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings... That's like the seraphim in, in, in Isaiah. Are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say. First of all, notice what? Day and night. Where are we? Heaven. I thought heaven was eternity. No. <laughs> Revelation is such great medicine. If you pay attention to the details of... You'll... you'll uh, Disillusion yourself about a lot of the nonsense we've been taught to think about heaven. Heaven very much has time. It very much has a succession of events. Heaven itself experiences day and night. When we die and go to heaven, we will see the day and night of heaven. Day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that's the Pantocrator word. It's such a beautiful word. You know, the Lord God Almighty, Pantocrator. You find that in the iconography of the East as well. Who was and is and is to come. Now, to whom has this been ascribed back in chapter 1? The Father. The Father is described as the one who is, uh, who was, who is, and who, who is ever coming. And we have it again here. And by the way, again here, the translation better, was, is, and ever coming. The coming one. So they are singing holy, holy, holy to the Father seated upon the throne. And this is reminiscent of the liturgical chant of the seraphim in Isaiah 6 that we saw, remember? So he's sitting in church on the Lord's day in the spirit. He receives this vision from Jesus. He goes up into heaven in the spirit. And what does he see? Liturgy. Liturgy on earth, liturgy in heaven. Heaven and earth are uniting in one liturgically. 
Maybe another way to think of it would be this. Since the creatures never cease, day or night, to engage this liturgy, it is an ongoing liturgy, maybe the best way to think about it concretely is this. When we come on Sunday mornings and participate in the liturgy, we're jumping into a liturgy that is already going. We're participating in what always is. Now this is where on the one hand, if you don't like church and you think that heaven being church is boring and terrible, then you're not, well, then you're not going to like heaven. Sorry, heaven's church. But the other thing is, these creatures are infinitely more interesting than the people in the pews around you. <laughs> Although I kind of remember being a little kid sitting in church and looking around at some of the odd creatures. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> now I am one. Yeah, well. So yeah, heaven is a church service. Think of everything you've heard about near-death experiences, after-death experiences, I was dead for 24 hours and came back, out-of-body experiences. Do any of them sound anything like this? No. Then guess where they were not? Yeah. We can, I can explain to you a lot of different explanations for where they might have been, but heaven is not where they were. Now, look at verse 9. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. So we get a second aspect of this liturgy. The chant of the 24 when they're led um, by the behavior, by the action, by the liturgical rite of the four living creatures. Then they respond by falling prostrate, they fall down before him who is seated on the throne. This kind of blows me away. If this is the, what the worship of heaven is like, what should the worship on earth be like? If these creatures seemingly, I mean, for all intents and purposes, live, I mean, they're, first of all, they're holy and we're sinful. And look at how they behave. And, and here, if you're going to say, well, the 24, they were people, so they were sinners once. Okay, fine. Then just stick with the four. How do the four behave? How do the two seraphim in Isaiah's vision behave? Covering their faces, covering their, their feet in his presence, veiling themselves in his presence. How do they behave? What is their, what is their composure? What is the feeling? What is, the, what is the nature of that worship? Don't worry, this is all rhetorical. I'm going to go on with my questions. You don't have to answer. If our, if our liturgy and worship on earth doesn't approximate this, or at least give a form that lends itself to these kinds of feelings, then there's something very, very wrong. Very wrong. Another way to look at it would be like this. Worship, the one time that God gives 
very ample instruction in regard to worship and how he is to be worshipped is the Old Testament. And it is liturgical and it is filled with awe and majesty and beauty. And we're told that this, is, that this temple is a reflection of what goes on in heaven. And then lo and behold, we see what's going on in heaven. It's this very thing. And then we see at the end of, we see at the new heavens and the new earth what it's supposed to look like. And guess what? It's this very thing. So before us, up in heaven, in the present, and in the future, worship all looks like this. Oh, gee, what should worship look like here? Eh, whatever we want. The more casual, the better. I, this is just, it's so alien to me. It's so alien to me. Thanks and praise be to God that we have a liturgical congregation here and that we have a, a worship form that allows for this kind of awe and meditation upon the word and consciousness that what we see with our eyes, the altar of God, and upon the altar and upon that as throne sits the body and blood of Christ. And we have a crucifix. We're so blessed to have that. And we can see then what Revelation is going to reveal to us, that, that the lamb in the heavenly place is the one crucified and raised. Christ and him crucified, as Paul says, our Passover lamb. And we have a worship space, we have a demeanor, we have an attitude. Again, it's, there's nothing like stuffy or unnatural about it, but it lends itself to this reflection, to continuity with what's going on in heaven. And where that isn't going on in a church on a Sunday morning, you can be guaranteed that that's symptomatic of something going wrong. It's like one of these things is not like the other. Remember from Sesame Street? Yeah. Okay, so we've got, we've got uh, everything here except we're missing, we're missing one major player, and then we're also missing the great thronging crowds, which we'll get to. But the great thronging crowds can't be there until the mystery is revealed. Let's go a little further. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now we know this is the Father. It's been revealed to us because he's called the Creator. He's the one who was and is and is to come. So we know that now that this is the Father. And in the Father's right hand, in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on back, sealed with seven seals. That's what was within his hand. Okay. A scroll written on the front and the back, which means full, absolutely full. And it's got seven seals. Now, seven, of course, is the number of God. You wouldn't expect to see any other number here, perhaps three, but seven, uh, even more fitting. And so that's what's there. Verse 2, And I saw a strong angel, a mighty angel, which is really quite the statement given everything else he's seen, including these four living creatures, to describe one even, even in that context as being mighty. This is an incredible angel. A mighty angel. I think there's a mighty angel three times in Revelation. This is, this is one of those places, if my memory is right. Now, he is proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly 
because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. An incredible statement. You have sinless angels, mighty angels, angels the scope and scale of which, as we shall see in Revelation, bring a profound sense of awe. Not one of them is worthy to open the scroll. Why not? In the narrative, in Revelation, in the narrative of, of Revelation, uh, we don't know. We don't know. But now in the fullness of the biblical revelation, we do know. What's on this scroll is nothing less than both the plan, verbal, but then the action, the manifest unfolding, because creation is word and word is creation, of the salvific plan of God, of the salvation of the nations, to be explicit. That the gospel is going to go forth and not merely be for uh, Israel or or a certain remnant of Israel, but it's going to go out salvation for the ends of the earth that the entire cosmos is going to be remade. That plan of salvation, now we, now we know that that's what the scroll is, and we know why it is that an angel, no matter how holy or mighty he is, cannot open it. Why? In order for the salvation of, of human beings, in order for that to be opened, what would have to occur? The ground of our salvation, the cross, the forgiveness of sins, the fact that man cannot make atonement for himself, cannot open that scroll. Neither can an angel, because he can't make atonement for man. This is why John weeps. There's no one to set this right. There's no one who can. The only one who could do it would have to be human so he could make atonement for humans, and he would have to be God so that he could make atonement for All humans, for the sins of the whole world, would be blotted out in his blood, and the whole world would be redeemed and rescued through him. That's the only way it could possibly happen. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, Two great Old Testament images. I wish we had time to go back into the backgrounds of those, but we don't. The lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered. Remember the theme throughout each of the seven epistles? The one who conquers, the one who conquers, the one who conquers. Now is the one who has conquered. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. So lion of the tribe of Judah, fierce powerful lion, Aslan-type figure in your mind. The root of David, kingly-type figure. David's uh, uh, son, yet David's lord. Powerful, powerful images. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Thus says the elder to John. And between the throne and the four living creatures, in other words, right in the midst. Remember the four living creatures? They're right on the throne. Like, look how close this is. It is right up in the midst of the throne, practically on top of the throne. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. That is such 
I mean, this is such drama. You could turn this into just the most beautiful movie scene ever. But one of the great impacts and punches of this scene is you're expecting the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're expecting Aslan. You're expecting the root of David. You're expecting the king with a crown and a sword unlike any other. And what do you see instead? The lamb. The strength of God is made perfect in weakness. Beautiful. And this, by the way, is the ultimate insult and victory from God to the devil. The devil's so proud and arrogant, God says, do you think I'm going to meet you in force? Force to force? you think that's how this is going to go? No. I'm going to beat you with weakness. I'm going to come in the form of a little squirming infant whom you're not going to be able to kill, who eventually you're going to kill, and by killing him, he's going to kill you. And then you're going to try to overcome the church. This is while getting to Revelation 12. Then you're going to overcome the church, and you're going to push her around and bully her and murder her and push her and imprison her and do whatever you want to do to her, and guess what? In and through those very things, she's going to conquer you. And that language and imagery of St. Paul, the one who crushed the serpent under his heel is going to cause the serpent's heel to be crushed under our heels as well. Yeah. Sorry, I'm speeding along here. I think that that's we ought to break there with the climactic reveal of the lamb. And we'll go and look back. I've already skipped over a couple of other details that are absolutely fascinating. And we're going to look at the full impact then of chapter 5. The Lord be with you.